Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, another good morning to you, whether you're joining us here or online. We're delighted to have you with us. My name is Ryan Anderson, one of the pastors on staff. Happy Advent to you. And if we've not met, as Pastor Patrick had mentioned, we'd love to be able to get to do that with you uh, after the service. We thank you for being here and choosing to be with us on this uh, second Sunday of Advent. These four weeks leading up to Christmas, these four weeks of Advent, we have been looking each week at uh, Isaiah chapter six, really, and seeing chapter nine, verse six, really, and seeing how each one of the names that uh, Emmanuel is called, how Jesus fulfills and fills out um, each one of those names. Last week, we looked at Wonderful Counselor. Uh, Today, we're gonna take a look at the second name, Mighty God. And we hope to show how each week, Jesus demonstrates that title in his life, ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And so today, we're gonna look at what the gospel writer Mark says about Jesus's earthly ministry. But just before I read, a brief question for you. Do you believe that there are things in your life that are bigger than you can handle. They're bigger than you can handle. You can't touch them. They're no match for you. And if so, how do you handle a life like that? How do you do it? If that's you, and wink, wink, I know it's all of us. I'm so glad you're here this morning because Mark chapter one shows us how we can live faithfully in a life like that. I want to invite you to stand this morning, and children, as we read, as you hear this sermon preached today, I would love for you to be able to listen for an illustration about why tales and why stories go the way they do. If you'll listen for that later on, adults now and everyone else, if you'll please listen to Mark chapter 1 as I read here from this first chapter. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, who is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and will you pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it lights our paths, that it revives our souls, that it causes us to delight. We ask that you would send Holy Spirit now to be our teacher so that we would see Jesus and that by seeing him, we would love him and that we would love you, Jesus, by following you, giving our lives more fully over to you. Make us not mere hearers of your word, but doers. Strengthen us first, we pray, tending to the bruised reeds and smoldering wicks among us and fanning into flame the spirit that you poured out at Pentecost so that the world might be amazed at how wonderful you truly are. We pray this for your sake and for your glory. Amen.
Well, this past summer, my wife Laura and our three girls joined other parts of our family out at Glacier National Park in Montana for a week, and it was wonderful. And I gotta tell you, this is a special park for my wife. When she was little, she was a little precocious girl, somewhere around 10, she was there with her family where they were on a guided hike with a guide. And despite being told to stay behind the guide, Laura went on up ahead to be the first to catch a stunning view of the next great glacial lake. And upon turning the corner, there about 25 feet ahead of her, in fact, she did see something that stunned her, but it wasn't a lake. It was a big nine-foot grizzly bear now turned on her. And so knowing the first rule is that you should never run away, she did what only she could do, run away like crazy. Screaming bear, bear, bear as she met up with the guide back with their group. In case you're wondering, the story ends well, she's out there somewhere this morning, she made it out alive. But not before her heroic dad ran in between her and the bear and started waving his arms and screaming. And now the science is still out on this. If it was his imposing 5'11 frame and loud voice, or if it was the guide's bear spray arcing over him, (laughs) hitting him in the face, the bear spread out, he left. But here's the point, grandpa came to defend Laura that day, just like any dad would. And in that moment, she was helpless and needed someone to protect her from a very serious threat. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that while you may never face lions and tigers and bears, oh my, that there is in every one of our hearts a cry, a cry for what Bonnie Tyler sang about in 1984, I need a hero. I need a hero. And we need someone to fight for us when we can't fight much less win that fight. Because the battles in our lives, no matter what they might be, there are just some that we cannot win. And so what does any of this have to do with Christmas? What do these situations have to do with Christmas? And I just wanna tell you that Christmas and heroes have everything to do with one another. In fact, it is Christmas that shows us our great need for a hero and the provision for it. You see, long ago in the book of Isaiah, as we've read today, God promised that there would be one to come whose name was Gibor El, Hebrew for a mighty God. And that title, mighty God, told God's people what God was going to do for them. You see, in other words, God wasn't coming to just have us to see and exalt in his wonderful glory and greatness. No, Christianity, as C.S. Lewis noted in Mere Christianity, is a fighting religion. And God, as our champion, has pledged out of sheer grace to come and fight our greatest enemies, our sin and death and rebellion, that is what Gibor El is all about. It is not about his transcendence, as true as it is. It's not about his powers of creation, though they are there. To be a mighty God means that we have a God that will fight for us. So I'll just cut to the chase. Mighty God refers to God being our hero, our champion, someone who fights for us, not the battles that we might otherwise make it scarcely through, no, but the battles that would end us. And right here in Mark chapter one, we see Jesus fulfilling and embodying his role as our mighty God, where Mark shows us two things. 
First of all, what he came to do or why he came. And then secondly, why he can do it, why he's able to do it. So let's take a look first, these first several verses about what it is that Jesus does to show us that he is mighty God. This section opens here in Mark right on the heels of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil. It's the beginning of his public ministry, and he enters a synagogue in Capernaum and begins to teach something that laymen would have done regularly. And there in verse 23, we're told that he meets a man with an unclean spirit. Now, this is just a synonym for demon possession. And that man, underneath the influence of this malevolent spirit, speaks for the demon and he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? That'll be important later on, by the way. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now the commentators will point out that this is the demon, it is the demon who rightly understands the true identity of Jesus when everyone else is sort of uninformed or unaware at the time. And he speaks in a characteristically combative way whereby he hopes to gain control of Jesus. But I want you to notice instead it's Jesus who dispenses with this demon and liberates the man, restoring him back to health. And so there are several things that Mark wants us to take note of in this text. First, I want you to see the world into which Jesus enters. It's a broken world held hostage by evil. Ever since the fall, sin, death, alienation, rebellion, and the like have characterized the world and man's relationship to God. You see, the Bible pulls no punches about the world. There's something deeply wrong. And it's into this world, warts and all, that Jesus enters. And he enters to mend. You see, if you miss this, you will flatten the mighty God to a little countryside preacher whose mission was to come give you a, a few little platitudes to help improve your life. But secondly, I want you to see that there is both a personal and unseen evil. You see, naturalism, that view of the world that says all that is is matter, that all that is is matter, and the world of the Bible, they're at odds with one another. For the Bible assumes a whole unseen world of powers and spirits, of principalities, as Apostle Paul would say, that right now in this very room are real, though unseen. And it's precisely Jesus' engagement with these that make him our mighty God. It's an old professor a hundred years ago at a seminary up in West, uh, Westminster in Philadelphia, a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. And he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism where he speaks about the supernatural, the supernatural world. He says, quote, the New Testament without the supernatural world would be far easier to believe. But the trouble is it would, be, it would not be worth believing. Without the miracles, the New Testament would contain an account of a holy man. Without the miracles, we should have a teacher but with the miracles, we have a savior. You see, we see right there at the outset, thirdly, in kernel form, that this is the essence of what Jesus's entire incarnation was about. This man was riddled by the effects of sin and evil. Listen, personified hell dwelled in this man. And Jesus came to liberate him and to restore him. 
And this is the first inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth, and it shows us where all of history is headed because of the baby in the manger. And therefore, as Jesus himself says, I came to bring what? Not peace, but a sword, that his arrival was a war declaration on the powers that threatened his beloved people. So friends, listen to me, please don't let the saccharine crushes and the soppy Hallmark movies, as wonderful as they are, blind you to the inherent belligerent, belligerence of Christmas. If the shepherds were flattened because of angels who cannot bear the sight of the Holy One of Israel, what happens? when the mighty God himself comes and comes to fight. I'll tell you what he does. I'll tell you what happens. He liberates his people. That's what he does. And I love what Martin Luther channeling Paul from Colossians chapter two, what he writes when he says, Jesus takes away the law, kills my sin, destroys my death in his body, and in this way empties hell, judges the devil, crucifies him, and throws him down into hell. In other words, everything that once used to torment and oppress me, Christ has set aside, he has disarmed it and made a public example of it, triumphing over it in himself. That is Emmanuel, that is our mighty God. And so I think I'd like to say just one of comfort, word of comfort for you this morning, one soothing so what for you. Many of you this very day are fighting battles that are simply too much for you. Deep fractures in marriages, cancer diagnoses that the medicine will no longer touch, the hundredth resume going out with no response, the wayward child who you long to hug again. This season of merry and bright for so many of us is more like a Griswoldian, full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency. And these are just the things in the world that can't be fixed in the world. And Jesus knows it, and he's with us to comfort us as long as we need him. As long as we need him. And between our, so and between our soothing our comforting, he bears his arm once more, rolls his sleep, and he goes and fights for us. And he works all things for his good, I mean for our good and for his glory. He comes not as a mighty CEO to make sure the business of your life goes smoothly. He does not come as the mighty MD to make your existence more painless. No, he comes as mighty God to defend you from all that seeks to end you. And he takes up arms offensively and he fights for you where you can't. Amen and amen. This is what he came to do. And the healing of the demon-possessed man is a sign of what Jesus as mighty God does for us. But believe it or not, Mark opens up more. He shows us more of what Jesus has come to do for us as mighty God. In fact, he shows us why Jesus can do such things. He reveals to us something about his person and his work that enables and that allows Jesus to do such for all who look to him. So let's take a look at that now in these verses 25, 22 and 25 and following. Notice this front and center reason why Jesus can 
and why Jesus does heal this man. It's right there in verses 22 and 27. I'll just read it again for you. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then in verse 27, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? It's the re- and the reason he has this teaching authority is because he is the one that possesses all and ultimate authority. You see, the synagogue leaders of that day, these scribes mentioned, focused primarily on when they taught on the endless repeating of the legal tradition. Something like this, well, so-and-so says this, but such-and-such says this. That's what church was like. But this man from Nazareth shows up in Capernaum and he teaches. And in contrast, the teachers and the crowds are astonished at the ring of truth in his words. The scribes spoke second-handedly about their authority. Jesus, with power and truth, unleashes his words, his teaching, and they're backed up with power. How do we know that? Again, verse 26, take a look. The demon confronts Jesus without any hocus-pocus or magic fairy dust. Jesus, with the word of his power from Hebrews chapter one, he does one thing, he speaks, he vocalizes air. And what happens in verse 27? He commanded even the unclean spirits and they what? They obeyed him. That's him putting his money where his mouth is. You see, it is he has authority unlike anything they have ever seen. That Jesus is, has the freedom to act and wherever he desires, whatever he desires, happens. And in this sense, he is king. And in this way, he further demonstrates how he is our mighty God acting for his people. Literally, the word for authority there, it means to bring out of being. This exousia, this coming out of being. That is what Jesus is able to do. Now kids, especially those who like to read, I don't know what stories you're into. What are your favorite stories, favorite stories of fiction? But if you have your favorite stories, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, about bringing out of being. We're reading our family, we've, we've read through some of the Narnia tales and some of the Harry Potter stories. But have you ever stopped to think about what the character, why the characters' names are what they are? I mean, why did the story go the way that it does? Why are the characters' names, for example, Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter? I mean, why not call them Carlos and Sylvia and Bing Bong and Hulu? I don't, it doesn't matter. Why, why are their names what they are? Or wouldn't the stories of uh, Barry Hotter been just as impressive as the stories of Harry Potter? And why does Professor Snape, for example, have such an amazing story and we get so little of Professor Flitwick? Here's why. It's all because of the author of the story gets to decide how the story goes. They are the ones that make worlds out of their words. And so does Jesus. You see, he has the authority or the authority. And it is being put on display here. That demon leaves because it's Jesus who made them. And I want you to know something. The worst of the demons, that old snake from the garden, has got a leash around his neck. And to quote Luther again, it is the devil, but it is the Lord's devil. 
And we must always remember that. We must always remember that when we face these battles. Look at it with me as well. I don't want you to miss how profound this text is as it applies to us personally. As this man was possessed by an evil spirit that eroded himself, that overtook him and had mastery, had authority over him, so too everybody in this room has something that has mastery over them, even if it's not being possessed by a demon. You see, so many in our culture will balk at the idea that something like this can occur, that demon possession could occur. But listen, when you examine their lives, our lives, when you examine their money, their desire for power, the desire for a certain figure or good looks, something that controls them, and it's something that directs the entirety of their lives. Have you ever gotten in the way of a Green Hillsian in their new kitchen? I mean, have you ever gotten in the way of a Brentwoodite's retirement? The word on the street is that you might elicit a, sh- a shriek that goes something like this. What have you done with me, Jesus of Nazareth? And I can tell you that's true in my own life. You come live with me for a day. Watch how I shriek when somebody imposes on my time. When Laura asks something of me that I don't want to do because I want to be king of my own life. I'm sure I'm the only one in the room that struggles with this, of course, but I just want to let you know this how this works out. What have you to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? And you see, each of us actually is giving authority in something in our lives other than Jesus. And you know what it's doing to us? It's crippling us. It's, crippling, it's making us less than human. And Jesus' mighty God says, this may hurt, but I've come to set you free. And brothers and sisters, you will only be healed. You will only be free when Jesus has pole position in your life. There are no halfway measures with him. You have to let him have authority. You, it's his already. It's his already. It's not like we go, well, Jesus, I allow you to have authority in my life. Guess who still has authority? You. We bend the knee to him as our king. And I love what the late Tim Keller says about the lie in every human heart that goes all the way back to the garden where the Satan-oppressed snake whispered, if you obey God, you will be miserable. That's the lie. If you obey him, you're setting yourself up for a life of misery, so don't do it. But what this text is showing us here, it's showing you the what of the authority of Jesus does. It liberates, it frees, it heals, and it restores, and it recreates. And don't you want that? Then you must surrender to him. And so have you done this with your life? Have you done it once, or have you done it for the thousandth time? And you say, well, I just can't do this. And this text shows us that Jesus can fix even that about you. So won't you just come to him? He's drawing you right now through his word and through his sacrament to show you that he will take care of you through the deepest sorrows and worst pains and the deepest valleys of your life. How do we know that he will do this? Because later on, Jesus wasn't finished yet with all of the demons. Because there was another day when Jesus this time, not the demons would cry out with a loud voice as he gave up his life on the cross. 
And at his temptation where Satan said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Later, the voices of the crowd would use that same satanic jeer and say, if you are who you say you are, the son of God, then come down off the cross, but he didn't. There he bore our sin, there he stayed, there he bore our rebellion against him, and there he bled out for us, and he cried out with a loud voice, my father, my God, my God, rather, why have you forsaken me? And there, where the world was accounting him weak, the mighty God was flexing. He was flexing, crushing the head of the serpent, forgiving all of our sin, mending our alienation from him, and wiping out the power of death forever and ever to fix the world forever and to fix you, and to fix you, and to mend what's broken in you. So have you, listener, come underneath that authority in your life. You say, I don't know if I can. Friends, he's the mighty God. Of course you can't, but he can. And I'm telling you, the day is coming where the trumpet will sound, the clouds are parting, and Jesus will touch down back on this earth once more. And his mighty Godness, he will be done fighting for his people. Hallelujah and amen. Because we'll be with him. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more sorrow. And if Advent teaches us about anything, it teaches us to wait and to look forward, to sit on the edge of our seats, looking for him to come like that. This is our mighty God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. You're exactly who the prophet spoke you would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an almighty Father, and an everlasting Prince of Peace. Thank you for this, O Lord. We ask that you would take these things, that you would press them down into our hearts, that we might see you as the one who fights for us when we're too weak to be able to do so when we can't. And we thank you that this is an office that you take up for us as our great King. Would this be real? Would it not be abstract for us? And may we entrust our souls to our creator while we continue to do good. We lift this up through Jesus and for his glory. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.